Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This is the second episode of a two-parter about a new investigation into the drug thalidomide. So if you haven't listened to part one, please do go back and listen to that first. Thalidomide is one of the greatest medical catastrophes of the 20th century. It's now thought to have been responsible for around 100,000 miscarriages and disabled children. In this episode, my guest, journalist Jennifer Vanderbess, reveals the second half of the story, involving six years of painstaking research, resulting in her recent book, Wonder Drug, The Hidden Victims of America's Secret Thalidomide Scandal, published by HarperCollins. So just to recap from part one, after thalidomide's launch in 1957 by the German company Gruenthal, four years on, doctors in a number of countries are becoming increasingly concerned about the drug's effects. In Australia, obstetrician Dr. William McBride, having delivered several disabled babies in mothers who were given thalidomide, starts to conduct animal experiments and becomes more and more convinced the drug is linked to the disabilities he's seeing. While in Germany, geneticist Dr. Whittaker Lenz's analysis of babies whose mothers have taken the drug produces what he believes is clear evidence that thalidomide is very far from safe. The devastating disabilities being caused in newborn babies include a shortening or absence of limbs, hands and feet that haven't fully formed, and damage to ears, eyes, brain, skeleton, and internal organs. And in the States, unbeknown to the FDA, the drug has been dispensed by over 1,200 doctors, despite the fact that it has not been approved for use, a development which will add further heartbreak to this tragedy. But before we get back to the story, and Jennifer's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash you or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. And now back to Jennifer's interview. So as I mentioned, Dr. William McBride in Australia is increasingly convinced thalidomide has to be linked to the disabilities he's seeing. And in Germany, Dr. Whittigan Lenz has seen enough. He's determined to get the drug off the market. We left the first part with Lenz alerting a medical conference. This starts a chain of events. Jennifer picks up the story. He gets a little nervous, I think, at the last moment and decides not to name the drug. He tells everyone there is a drug in wide circulation. We have a lot of evidence suggesting that it's linked to these birth abnormalities. He comes just short of naming the drug. But as soon as his speech ends and he kind of makes his way to the side of the room, 
all these doctors understandably come up to him. They're like, is it thalidomide? And he says, yes. And at that point, kind of cats out of the bag. And someone at that conference then tips off the press. And right around what I would call Thanksgiving or the end of November 1961, you get front page news in Germany that there is a drug linked to these very severe birth abnormalities. It is called thalidomide. Grunenthal wakes up like the rest of Germany to this on their doorstep. And that changes everything. And at that point, there is no delaying anymore. They have to take action. They immediately move to recall it from the market. Meanwhile, in Australia, William McBride actually contacts the British company, Distillers Biochemical, to raise his concern. It seems to be unclear about who told what, when, and who understood what, when. Yes, by varying accounts... He was concerned about thalidomide right around the time that Lenz and Schulthillen were. And by his account, he was making phone calls and alerting their salespeople. And there are varying accounts um, from people who worked at distillers saying, oh, yes, this was talked about at the time. You know, one employee of distillers recalls being at a dinner party with someone very high up at distillers who said something to the effect of, I don't think the, you know, the market for thalidomide is going to go on that much longer. Someone in Australia is complaining about its link to birth defects. And this registers with this particular employee because his wife is pregnant, just about to give birth, and he has been giving her thalidomide. And of course, by the time that baby is born, that baby does show the traditional effects that we now connect to thalidomide. According to the higher-ups, they never heard of this. They had no idea. I mean, this is a somewhat standard story that you hear in the UK, from the UK company, from the American company, and the German company, a constant recitation that they were not made aware of this connection, these concerns, and that ultimately they were only finding out very late in the game and, of course, acted when they did. Many people who were working in these companies at the time and a lot of paperwork appears to dispute that narrative. Meanwhile, in the States, Merrill removed its application for the drug to be approved. Yes, but after... Quite a sizable delay. And I would say, I think the narrative that they tried to craft and, you know, with this having spent so many years looking at all the documents so carefully, I feel very comfortable saying this. Okay. So November 61. Yeah. Germany withdraw the drug from the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much longer afterwards are Merrill withdrawing their FDA application? About four months. And that's a very long wait. And it gets more complicated than that because that's the withdrawing of the application is quite a private conversation between the drug firm and the FDA. There, it has nothing to do with the doctors. We know by their own records, at least 1,200, that in no way is information that ever gets shared with doctors. That's a corporate to bureaucratic paperwork conversation. The relevant information about Merrill's actions is that they were very, very slow to alert the actual doctors to whom they'd given the drug. I mean, I look at this story and I think, okay, you know, you're you're a drug firm. You find out that this drug, you thought it was wonderful. You believed it, right? You're going to tell every doctor across the United States, this is so safe. We're going to help people. It's wonderful. You get a phone call from the inventor of the drug, your overseas counterpart, and they say, we have removed it from the market, right? Because of claims that is linked to birth defects. In my mind, your first phone call after that is like, you sit around, you're like, guys, get all the obstetricians to whom we gave the drug on the phone. You want to target the obstetricians, the doctors who could possibly be giving it to pregnant women. And they don't do that. 
They send some very vague letters to a small set of their investigators in December. The letter does not make clear the risk of birth defects. The gist of it is, is they refer to them as unproven claims. I will say this, they do not relay alarm in their words or in their choice of who and when they contact. And that is problematic to this story. Again, remember that they have a robust sales force that they were able to send out across the country in a very short span of time to meet with all these doctors in person to get them interested in the drug. They don't send those guys to talk to doctors and say, halt right now. We think there might be a risk. That does not happen. You get letters and they're sent months after they're made aware of the dangers. And a lot of doctors didn't see these letters. Many doctors, the FDA found out in their own investigation, had already passed it along to a hospital pharmacy, to their colleagues. These letters only go to the people on the Merrill list. They don't get sent anywhere else. So as you can see in the American version of the story, you see the kind of setup for why this gets so dangerous for the American public, because this drug has been spread out widely. The drug firm that has spread it out widely is alerted to very significant possible health concerns, you know, for women and babies. It's taken off the market by the inventor and the original distributor of the drug. And the American firm is simply not acting in any state of alarm. And it takes it really into the summer when the FDA starts asking around is really only when Merrill starts to take any kind of what we would call, I think, definitive action to ensure that those pills are no longer in circulation. And the terrifying thing is, because of the lack of record keeping and because the drugs have been passed on to other doctors, we have absolutely no idea exactly how many dosages of thalidomide were out in the American public. Yes. I'll step back for a second. It's actually not until the Senate subcommittee summons the FDA commissioner, Commissioner Larrick, having to explain what the FDA has done or not done. He very quickly decides that the FDA should actually investigate this. On the eve of his appearance before the Senate, almost every FDA inspector across the country is sent out to sort of do the opposite of what the, sale, the Merrill salesman had done and kind of find out where this drug is and try to gather it up. What they very quickly realize is that they're interfacing with doctors who simply cannot answer for who they've given the pills to, and that includes patients or other doctors. And none of the numbers match up. Like they've got shipment records. This doctor was shipped thousands and thousands or millions of pills. And according to his records, he gave out five, right? Nothing is matching up. And the FDA is very distressed at this information. And they simply can't get a handle on any kind of accurate record keeping as to the ultimate number or names of doctors who got it, and certainly not the patients. Which means, remarkably, even today, the FDA has only ever formally admitted to a handful of thalidomide cases in the US. Whereas given the number of drugs that we know were given out, the number has to be far, far greater. Yeah, there was a significant undercount on the part of the FDA. Now, some of that they were aware of. During their investigation, they heard of babies born with phocomelia. So Jennifer, this is the medical term when a limb doesn't form properly. There's no arm or leg and the hand or foot is attached directly to the body. Correct. One was the child of a nurse who likely would have had access to thalidomide. Early on, they decide, and I and I really don't know exactly why this is, but it plays a huge part in the story and why the American victims have suffered so unduly, is they sort of decide that they, if they can't 
really clearly draw a straight line between the baby of a woman who got thalidomide and someone on Merrill's list, that they will just ignore that case without kind of crunching the numbers and realizing, well, but if we're talking to all these doctors and they tell us that they've passed it along to colleagues and we know it's circulated, maybe we should investigate or support them or have a broader conversation that recognizes there's no straight line, but these are birth injuries that are so specific and related to a drug that has been widely circulated in this hospital or this county. They don't do that. They just fix on the number of ones they can directly tie to investigators. They decide that nine babies in the U.S. have been harmed by thalidomide distributed in Merrill's clinical trials. Interestingly, when I finally did a deep dive into that list of nine, three of those, I think two were stillborn and one passed away shortly after birth. So by the FDA's public acknowledgement, there should be six. As of 1962, there should only have been six living victims of American thalidomide. I've interfaced with scores of them. I think we have somewhere around the ballpark of 100 that are still living, obviously incredibly complicated to prove due to lack of record keeping, but the years align, the location align, the injuries align. And we also know that the FDA in its original count was really only looking at a very narrow set of babies and had basically dismissed every other case from even being worthy of their time or conversation. Well, I guess the other way for the FDA to look at it, which happens in some other illnesses, you look at what the baseline would be in the natural population for this disability to occur. And if you see a figure which is much, much higher than that, and you've no other explanation, you could also therefore allocate those as the additional number of thalidomide cases. Oh, absolutely. The Merrill Company was headquartered in Cincinnati. In one hospital, I am close with three of at least five individuals who were born with Focamelia at the Jewish hospital in Cincinnati within about a year of each other. That is simply an absurd statistic to occur naturally. Any obstetrician, any medical professional worth their salt would know that. What you had were doctors who were adamantly denying that the drug had been administered to those women, the mothers not knowing what they had been given, forget even um, pursue a claim, but not being able to even know sort of what questions they should ask. You had the same at another Cincinnati hospital. They did eventually tell the FDA, I think it was again, also maybe half a dozen um, babies born with Focamelia. They knew that thalidomide was available in that hospital, but the hospital said, well, it was never given to pregnant women. Again, well, then how how do you account for this sort of incredible surge in a very rare case, you know, that we know is linked to this drug? The unfortunate part of this story is that uniformly what I found in the United States, and even when you look at the Canadian story where the drug was on prescription and you would have thought that doctors would be more comfortable being honest about what they had administered, a really across the board denial on the part of physicians wanting to say that they had given this drug to women. This was the pattern. You know, I did have the drug in my office. Oh, yes, one of my patients did have, you know, uh, a baby with Focamelia, but I never gave the mother thalidomide. So move along. And that's pretty much the pattern. So you say in a book, because of this, the US is the world's sole first world nation, which has refused to compensate its thalidomide victims. 
Yeah. So the U.S. government, again, has really been proud of the fact that it did not put thalidomide on the market. But what it did quite problematically, and this went really unreported, in 1962, when the FDA starts figuring out that it wasn't 37 doctors who got thalidomide, it was over 1,200, and they gave it to their colleagues. Have you got any feel at all, Jennifer, for how many doses were handed out? Oh, I estimate about 5 million went into circulation. I looked at the numbers that every drug firm, and Richardson Merrill had a few subsidiaries. So the drug was actually being manufactured and distributed from multiple points around the United States. And then you add in SmithKline French. And the FDA eventually goes to their warehouses at the end of all this and is basically like, well, how much is left, right? How much did you import? How much did you manufacture? They can get their hands on certain records and you can sort of reverse engineer And what I looked at, I think the FDA originally said 2.5 million doses went out. You know, it really depends on what you consider a dose. The pill was available in 25 milligrams to 200 milligrams. If you look at the standard dose, a 75 to 100 milligram daily dose, when you look at how the FDA kind of crafted its, I mean, everything was an undercount. It was, well, we'll we'll only disclose the named doctors and not mention the other doctors will look at the warehouse records and we'll assume 200 milligram dose, you know, we'll assume that it went out in the largest possible pill and that only this number of doses circulated. Um, We're talking at least 5 million doses. And any feel for how many pregnant women were given the drug? Hundreds, hundreds easily. I mean, based on how many obstetricians we're dispensing it. That's based on how many individuals we have now born in that time who have these very specific injuries and whose mothers recall being given unnamed pills. And do we have any idea if you take thalidomide early in pregnancy, what your chances are of having a child born disabled? Um, I don't know the exact statistic because I do think it really comes down to the day. Timing to the actual timing. So there was a very prominent case in the United States. Sherry Finkbein was a woman who realized that her husband had come from an, hum from England with this great new sedative, kept it around the house. She was pregnant, ran out of her other anti-anxiety medication, was using that. Helen Tausig was a medical specialist who was very deep in investigating the story. When she was made aware of Finkbein's exposure to thalidomide and the timing of it, counseled that terminating the pregnancy was an option because the likelihood of that child being born with the injuries was astronomically high. So it's clear Merrill has a very poor understanding of where all these drugs have gone. And the FDA does want action taken against Merrill, but that all seems to sort of fall apart. Yes. This key part of the story in terms of accountability is that the FDA eventually does its investigation and determines that that the clinical trials were a marketing scheme. And they go to the Justice Department in the United States and they say, this is criminal. Bring a case, right? Here's the evidence. In one of the many bizarre, inexplicable, upsetting twists of the story, the United States Department of Justice sends a letter back to the FDA saying, well, we think that they were operating within the letter of the law. 
you're allowed to do clinical trials before approval. And that's what they did. And really, there's only one American victim. And so what's the point? Um, that's kind of the gist of the letter. The FDA reads this and they're totally outraged. They circle back. They're like, no. I mean, first of all, at that point, they had a, a victim tally of nine, which again, we now know was a severe undercount. And they knew it was an undercount. But they felt like, well, there's at least nine. And no, these were not clinical trials in the way that they were supposed to be. But the Justice Department won't budge. So the situation as it evolves for the American victims is that the storyline is the drug was never approved by the FDA. The pharmaceutical company was never held criminally accountable. And all this looks like it was okay. And the number of circulating pills, the number of doctors who dispensed it was not publicly known. The thing the FDA withheld so they eventually said, yes, 1,200 doctors were on the list by Merrill. What they never disclosed was that they knew from their investigation that those doctors had passed it along. The piece of information that they sat on, almost sit on to this day, is that they were well aware of this drug was handed out much more widely than those 1,200 doctors, that many women would have been given it whose doctors' names were not on that list and whose babies could have been affected by thalidomide. And everybody just decided to just sort of live and let be and let that go. And the other thing that the FDA seemed to let go were the investigators at SmithKline French. This was the US company who'd looked at the drug before Merrill. It didn't go ahead with thalidomide because it said it didn't think the drug was effective. And Jennifer, you've tried to find out who those original SmithKline French investigators were. Yeah. So actually, what's interesting is I was very curious through the process of researching this book to try to replicate and understand what information anyone who thought they were affected could have gotten reasonably in time or understood. So I actually had and have the list of SmithKline French investigators <laughs> that became evidence at one point in a lawsuit. Uh, lawyers got them, then I got hold of it. What I was interested in is that the FDA, for reasons that are inexplicable, if I tried to reach out to them and get that information, continue to not release it. I'm not even sure they realize that it's available in other routes, but this speaks to the, the murky space that their own understanding of this story has taken. I mean, I think that there are good-hearted, responsible people working at the FDA who themselves took at face value this narrative of their agency's behavior. I went through thousands and thousands of pages of paperwork that was not in sequence that was not organized by subject matter, to sort of get a handle on the arc and realize the FDA commissioner lied to Congress, right? Blatantly lied, was parroting what the drug firm had told him. The FDA investigation only started months later on the eve of him having to appear. I don't genuinely think that the people that I've been interfacing with the agency, who I, you know, I have no reason to dislike, really understand any of that, right? I mean, why would they? You know, it's a really deep dive into a story we all thought we understood. I don't think they fully grasp how difficult they have made it for survivors to untangle their own story. And the reason why I have persisted in, and went the distance to try to request information in some cases that I already had <laughs> is that many of these individuals have been stalled in a lawsuit. And this case hinges a lot on the drug firms telling them that they should have known years ago and understood what happened to them. Because if you haven't got the doctor 
and you haven't got the information about whether they gave you the drug or not, that makes a lawsuit almost impossible. Right. But even before they get to that point, the drug firms just want to say, it's been a really long time. Here's a list of articles about thalidomide in America. You should have read these, understood that this could have happened to you, and you've, you've missed your timing. That's the first argument. And because of that, in some situations, it's been effective installing these cases. What I wanted to show in my research for the book is that, you know, it took me six years toiling away to try to piece the story together. And it was an exhausting feat. And I come out of a background of research and writing. In what universe really is an individual who is already struggling with challenges of trying to be able to work a job? These are people who oftentimes travel is incredibly challenging, right? So they should have gone to the Library of Congress and the Harvard Medical Library and spent six years digging through this. And even as I try to show basic requests to the FDA, going back to the 1960s and into present day for information on the story have always been met with, this is information we can't release. And what's interesting, Liz, is the point of view in them dealing with the story has really been prioritizing physician privacy over patient rights. They did not want the list of Merrill's investigators to be public. They were trying tooth and nail to make sure that the doctors who had dispensed this drug were never named. They failed on the first set. They eventually had to make the Merrill names public, but they never wanted to release the SmithKline French names. And so what you have is a system that has spent decades trying to make sure that doctors who handed out a drug, which is not inherently criminal, are not named so that women who saw those doctors have no way of determining whether or not the pills that they got in time might have been connected to limite. And this matters because if you have a justice department that decides to drop the criminal case, no one did the research. The materials that are often unearthed in a criminal investigation very often become the basis for civil suits, right? They make it easier and faster for lawyers to say, okay, we'll come in because we know there's a pile of evidence that someone else found. Because sometimes it's the only way you can get disclosure of certain documents. Absolutely, right? So the decision by the U.S. to not pursue the FDA's recommended charges is highly problematic and explains the whole trajectory of what happened to these victims over the past 60 years. The few that went to lawyers independently were basically told, you've got to be kidding me. How much of an investment would I have to make to go after a pharmaceutical firm that the government already decided wasn't worth pursuing criminally? Like It really looks like a burdensome, unwinnable case to a lot of lawyers. The first battle that they face is just trying to establish and prove to a judge in a court of law that it's quite reasonable that it took them this long to even know that they could bring this case, right? And that is still kind of up for debate. The second round, as you pointed out, Liz, in the United States, because this wasn't sold in stores, there were no receipts and doctors weren't prescribing it, women were getting this drug very casually in brown envelopes, just with instructions for when they should take it without the name of the drug in bottles that have been repurposed for, from other things. So the challenge to prove at this point that these survivors were exposed in thalidomide to prove it concretely is incredibly hard. Uh, aside from that, if they did happen to have one of those pills, we know thalidomide effectively dissolves or deteriorates or grows over time. So Jennifer, what's your explanation for why the case against Merrill was dropped? 
Liz, I wish I knew. Um, I saw some letters where people said that they suspected there were backdoor discussions. Merrill, interestingly, as a company, it's worth pointing out that they were under criminal investigation. They pled nolo contendere, no contest, and accepted punishment for another drug that they were marketing at the same time. There is a theory that was circulated that the Justice Department felt like it was unnecessary to pursue one company for two different drugs at the same time, that they were getting enough punishment and embarrassment from the charges. Beyond that, I mean, of all the pieces in the story that I really, up until the eve of publication, was scrambling and sweating to try to find, I eventually located a file at the National Archives that was supposed to have something relating to the Justice Department in this case in there. And I thought maybe, maybe, maybe there's a piece of paper that shows a note of something. There's nothing. It is a dead trail as to why the Justice Department specifically would inaccurately state that there was only one victim. I mean, that's the most bizarre piece of the story because it's at odds with their own agency's investigation. But I I think you want to keep in mind that they were pursuing the same firm for a different drug on different charges, and that probably factored into the conversation. And I suppose the other really depressing thing is the FDA, the US drug regulator, which is supposed to protect the public health, absolutely prioritized doctors, not patients. Yeah, and it, it speaks to an attitude at the time. People trusted doctors very much at that time. I don't think you don't have most women looking at these brown envelopes with any sense of question or challenge. And you have a lot of women who, I think after the fact, when their doctors didn't say, oh, this was thalidomide. In Canada, you have stories where women actually wrote to their doctors after giving birth to a child who suffered phocomelia and saying, was that thalidomide you gave me? And the doctors say no. And then the FDA was working to make sure that these doctors, I would just say, weren't put in an uncomfortable position. To this day, what's really curious to me is that the FDA will say that if they were to release the names of these doctors to me, that I could somehow get the names of their patients. And I I still can't figure out how. I'd love to know how you do that. That's a a new book. I mean, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) uh, You know, if I had the name of the doctor, there would be no way for me to get a patient list. And what's exceptionally curious about that is even when they ask the doctors themselves, the FDA in several situations, a doctor would say, in one instance, a doctor said, I was a Merrill clinical investigator. I had a patient who had a stillborn with webbed feet and I did give her uh, thalidomide. And the FDA was like, we need to talk to this woman. The doctor refused to give her name. So what's interesting is that the FDA knows that doctors can withhold their patient's name from them. I'm not sure how they think I would be able to get those patient names on my own, just having a doctor's name. Now, the British government doesn't cover itself in glory either. The British health minister of the time, Enoch Powell, refuses to meet any children who've been damaged by thalidomide. But also in the UK, the drugs dangers are not widely covered until June 62. So that's seven months after the drugs withdrawn from the German market. Correct. And even then, the British government decides to permit the use of thalidomide in hospital under strict conditions. That was a very strange detail I came upon. Many doctors didn't understand the dangers. And you had the same thing in the US, the drug firm itself, Merrill, once it knew of the drug's dangers from Germany, 
sort of gave a special dispensation to a few doctors to keep their trials going. I mean, even in Germany, I don't think there was any desire on the part of Grunenthal to have the drug still in use anywhere at the time. I think they were quite frightened of what the ramifications were going to be. But yes, the, the British Health Authority really does not take anything that would be considered robust action. The press is very slow to cover it. An interesting detail for me, and, and Liz, you're you know well-versed in how the UK law works, but obviously the story in the UK is very interesting because as soon as there's any legal action pending a court case, the whole story has to go silent. There's a sort of news blackout. And so you have families understandably wanting to pursue legal action. That makes a ton of sense. But what they don't have is any support from the public because the public isn't getting any media exposure to the story because the media is not allowed to cover the story. And of course, you know, this is the wonderful episode in the UK version of this where the intrepid Harold Evans (laughs) comes in. Of the Sunday Times. Of the Sunday Times. And they do such an extraordinary investigation, which also takes an astronomical amount of work. And I point out, you know, that investigation has to rely on legal documents from a Swedish court case. And Harold Evans risks going to jail in telling of the story, because as you say, various injunctions had tried to stop the reporting of this. Absolutely. But, you know, he's been at the story for years. He's deeply invested. He is, you know, looking in the face of this ridiculous injustice. I mean, the story at the time from the drug firms all was, this is terrible, but how could we have known? That is the kind of across the board presentation to the press that they give. And that sounds plausible and understandable, but it takes people looking through the paper trail and the documents to basically disprove the statement that, you know, how could we have known? Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, here's the doctor. A few clues. Here, here's the timeline of people who are asking about pregnancy safety and alerting you to concerns and issues that you blew off. And that's a very different version of the story than how could we have known. Just going back to the British government deciding to permit the use of thalidomide in hospital under strict conditions, how much do we know about what it was being used for and where? I know very little. I mean, I would assume it was restricted to the use in men. I think that that even at that time, you know, with the thalidomide is in use today, and that's a Um, a pretty standard caution about making sure it's not in any way accessed by women of childbearing age, not even pregnant women, women of childbearing age. It's used in leprosy and several cancers. Yes. The new applications and uses for thalidomide were discovered precisely because it was still sitting on shelves in hospitals. And a doctor in Israel had a patient suffering from, you know, pain from leprosy lesions and, you know, reached over and decided to try thalidomide because nothing else was working. It, it turns out to be what we think of as a success story, but it speaks to the strange fact that, well, why was thalidomide still available anywhere? It had proven to be such a dangerous and problematic drug. It's, it's strange that there were passes given to physicians or hospitals to, to keep it around. Because I was actually also surprised you mentioned that Japan doesn't withdraw the drug until June 63 which is 18 months after Germany. And Spain only compensated thalidomide survivors in 2010. Yeah, it's been a really slow path. The story unfolded very differently in different countries. In Japan, I believe it was a ridiculous number of different names that the drug was sold under. And so people, and this happened a lot in the story internationally, you know, news would break about, oh my God, a drug called Contragen you know, in Germany that's connected to birth abnormalities. And you have doctors sometimes reading this news and they don't realize that contragen is the same thing as 
a drug sold under a different name that they are currently administering to patients. Which is a problem today, actually. I mean, you'll see a drug will have now, say, 50 different names. And if somebody is trying to check the side effects of it, it's much, much harder, which is why it's always useful to also know the generic name. Absolutely. Individuals taking these drugs and even doctors themselves sometimes aren't understandably, when there's so many names, fluent in the variation of names that any drug can have. Yes, Spain was very slow. Japan was very slow. The story globally, Liz, is that the survivors of this drug, again, they were all harmed before they were even born. The path to justice, I can't think of a quite comparable story, (laughs) you know, really in human history, where someone suffers an injury before they take their first breath. And then some of them have to spend their whole lives trying to understand the source of that injury and then fight for some kind of support, compensation, understanding, apology. It's so shocking that this happened. And then in some cases, like the US, especially, that it has taken so long for the victims of this drug and now the you know currently living survivors to just get acknowledged for having suffered the injury that they did and why they did. That has been a, a really unique piece of the thalidomide saga. And what's the best estimate, do we think, worldwide of the number of children who were born disabled as a result of thalidomide? The number of individuals harmed in utero, I think, is definitely 100,000 and upwards if you look at the massive circulation of the drug and how safe it was considered to be for pregnant women. I hear stories frequently from people who say, oh, my mother suffered a very traumatic miscarriage right around that time and mentioned a strange pill she had been given. Those women really even weren't a part of the conversation. If it was a miscarriage or stillborn, that was sort of, okay, we're not even including that as a victim. So I I think the number has always been significantly higher than what started circulating in the 60s. And the tragedy is that if the safety studies had either been done or enough attention had been taken when doctors started raising these problems, so much of this could have been avoided. Yes. I mean, the important part of the story is that there were drugs, aminopterin was one at the time, that were known to be dangerous in pregnancy. Distribution of that drug sort of predates the sort of wide worldwide distribution of thalidomide. There was a researcher within Grunenthal itself that was advocating to ask these questions. It is not like it had never occurred to people in the medical or pharmaceutical profession that a drug could be risky to pregnant women or to a developing embryo. What you see is just a desire to sort of move along and not pause and ask those questions. You can also understand those studies and that data can be a little time consuming you know, the animal testing has to be extensive. Different species absorb thalidomide differently. So some present injuries very obviously, some don't. I think it's very clear now in hindsight that if one were determined to answer that question definitively, first of all, better animal studies could have been undertaken. Uh, Researchers writing to various drug companies that they suspected problems with the drug would have been taken more seriously. But if nothing else, I think the reports of babies that were suspected to have injuries that were related to this drug absolutely could have been taken more seriously. Grunenthal, what's interesting about their storyline is even up until the point where they were brought to court 
um, civilly and criminally by the German government was still actually just denying the, the link between thalidomide and the injuries. We've now gotten so far past that point. We have enough animal research that proves it incontrovertibly. We know exactly how it affects the developing embryo. But they really marched into court. One of their arguments was that we actually think that thalidomide has saved babies that would have been miscarried otherwise. And that's really what you're seeing. Just babies that were malformed and would not have would not have had lives but for our drug. The mindset and approach was not necessarily about more and thorough research. There was very much a desire to propel the drug forward as much as possible. But interestingly, in Germany too, the criminal and civil actions collapsed against Grunenthal. Yeah, and they they collapsed sort of interestingly. I mean, the court case there sort of ends, right? There are no findings. Um, There are declarations. And part of the declaration that came out of that case was, we're not going to argue that thalidomide is linked to birth defects. Let's let's just accept that the research stands and that's been proven. But they abandon or end the criminal case. And in recent years, there has been discussion or suspicion that was, uh, I think the word has been orchestrated by Grunenthal and that there might have been a conversation with the German authorities suggesting that, well, you know, if you keep at this criminal case, we're just not going to have any money to actually support these families. So the families get some kind of settlement, but the criminal charges are dropped. The families, individuals involved in these cases are shocked and surprised. They, many of them really wanted criminal accountability. This relates to the sort of broader story of thalidomide, which is that there were no criminal findings and as I found in researching the American side of the story, and I can, you know, I can speak more thoroughly to that because it was a version of the story that had not been looked at before. I suspect if I could go in a time machine and hand the Justice Department my book in 1964, I think the decision would have been different. I do not think they had access, time, the really deep dive had not been done. And a lot of materials were later presented in the few civil cases that came to trial, things that I had access to and could look at, but I don't think the Justice Department even got, ever got around to looking at that. And there seemed to have been a belief in the version of events that Merrill was offering, which was they told the press very publicly, you know, we behave responsibly and swiftly. I do not agree that the documents or evidence align with that. But as I said, it takes a lot of time to really disprove a public statement a prominent pharmaceutical company. But the political climate was such that the background of this is the US is putting in place a bill for tougher drug regulation. So you might have felt that that was the time for a proper investigation. Well, I think interestingly, what you say is that I think the attitude of the government at the time was, well, we got our bill. So job done. Yeah, we got our bill and we got this pharmaceutical firm on other criminal charges. So do we really need to expend the time and resources on this like thalidomide pocket when there's only one victim, right? And I don't think they understood that we'd be in 2023, I'd be discussing with you 100 plus American victims, uncompensated, unsupported, unrecognized, like they did not know. And they downplayed it and they sort of moved along It's a really interesting and sad story of sometimes how long it can take for evidence to really come to the surface. And yes, we we got our drug bill. We changed a lot of things in clinical trials that had been part of the reason thalidomide 
was widely distributed. So I think they felt like, okay, we've accomplished our mission. Although sadly, America still pays the highest drug prices in the world. Well, right. It surprised me in researching this that the discrepancy between American drug prices and those of American patented and produced drugs overseas were so different. It, I was shocked to see that as far back the late 1950s, Congress was discussing this, was noticing this and trying to fight this fight. That particular issue of drug prices gets buried at the end of the day when the drug bill finally passes. Thalidomide has made safety the big hot topic. And that's what the drug bill is really trying to address, safety, safety, safety. And so they kind of shelve the conversation about drug prices for another day. And today we are still having the conversation. The one person who is finally recognised for her work is Dr. Frances Kelsey, the FDA reviewer who, despite pressure, refused to approve thalidomide in the US. And despite what Merrill did, her actions, Jennifer, certainly prevented many, many Americans from being harmed by the drug. And as a result, far fewer babies were born in America with disabilities caused by thalidomide than in, for example, the UK or Germany. Absolutely. Had the drug gone on the market, the story would be astronomically worse. She keeps it off the market. You know, the estimates at the time, and I would stand by them, would have been we probably would have had something in the ballpark of 10,000 babies affected by the drug. She is recognized. She gets an award from Kennedy on the White House lawn. You know, she's in Life magazine. She's celebrated. The American public is really happy to have this icon of safety and protection. And people of all walks of life are writing her letters and they're so thrilled. And she really captures the American imagination. The drug bill passes. You know, she's there for its signing, standing behind Kennedy. She's given a pen by the president. It's a sort of beautiful what appears to be end to the story. And of course, this book is very much about how that was not truly the end of the story. And there was a lot that was still buried and had to come to light. Um, But certainly for her trajectory, it was phenomenal. And she keeps working at the FDA. She keeps working on improving the procedures for clinical trials and drug safety and, you know, works there into her 90s. And what I found actually really moving, age 101, the Canadian government come to her home when she's very ill to give her an award. Yeah, it's really touching. I mean, she's very humble, you know, not an attention hog in any way, but in terms of the statistics and the impact of what she did, she was well aware of what that episode in her life had achieved and what it cost her. You know, there's a lot of blowback. I mean, she did work at the FDA a long time, but this was a very male agency and she was very mistreated after this episode within the agency by her colleagues you know, sort of punished for getting the spotlight or, you know, being the hero. She gave up a lot. She sacrificed a lot to protect people. And yes, on her deathbed, basically, the Canadian government shows up. She's got her cat nestled beside her, her daughter's there, and they grant her this award honoring what she did. She's beloved by the thalidomide community, particularly in Canada. And in fact, a lot of the compensation that has come to thalidomide survivors in the rest of the world is because of her, because the ability of survivors in other countries to say, but the FDA didn't approve it, right? Why did you? Why did Canada approve it when Francis Kelsey stopped it, right? They can point to something that indicates that there was a flaw in paperwork and that there was irresponsibility in their own governments allowing it on the market because she had behaved responsibly. So perhaps what we need today in drug regulation is more Francis Kelsey's. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. They used her. It's funny. You can look back for a while. She was part of their sort of recruitment films. I mean, it's it's rare. 
that a bureaucratic regulator ends up on the White House lawn getting an award from the president. She was really, I think, a selling point of the importance of entering government service and using your education and intelligence to do things that served the public and protected people. And we do want to commend that and celebrate that and entice people who are smart (laughs) and feisty to enter those roles and, and do that for the public. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for exploring the story with me. It is an absolutely astonishing tale. And I can only begin to imagine the level of research that it must have taken to expose it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Liz, for your great questions in the conversation. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you could leave a review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>